Hello, and welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. I'm Evelyn Wallace, and I'm the author of this here book slash audiobook slash podcast. You can find me at Evie Wallace, that's E-V-Y-W-A-L-L-A-C-E, across all social media platforms, if you're into that kind of thing. Now, if this is the first time you're jumping into this story, I recommend you start with the introduction and work your way through chapter by chapter. For those of you who are all caught up and have already worked your way through chapter by chapter, I really can't thank you enough for being on this journey with me. Knowing you're out there keeps me going. So truly, thank you. Now, let's get this show on the road. Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 13, London Calling. There are three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they are shown, and those who do not see. Leonardo da Vinci. I arrived in London on a bright, warm morning after spending my overnight hours circumnavigating the North Pole. I guess the Earth really is a giant sphere. Groovy. Olivia was waiting for me exactly where she said she would be and recommended I get set up with an international burner phone right away. But first things first, she said. Are you hungry? Tired? What do you need? Please forgive my terrible English accent. Breakfast sounds lovely, I admitted. So we stopped at the nearest cafe, ordered whatever sounded least like airplane food, and outlined our upcoming time together. I need to spend some time studying my lines for this play I'm in later in October, I said, and I'll have to carve out at least 12 hours a week for my work stuff, land trust, yada yada. But other than that, I'm at your mercy, madame. Delightful, she said. I have a few fabulous ideas penciled into our itinerary. I should note here that my hostess and her family were planning a permanent relocation to Mexico before the end of the calendar year, and it seemed to me like Olivia had some London-specific sightseeing to do before expatriating. We were going to be tourists together. After breakfast, we started back to Olivia's Camberwell flat on foot, while the luggage rolled behind us and clicked out the metronome beat of seams in the sidewalk. We paused at photogenic bridges and allegedly public but very hidden gardens. Olivia explained the difference between a commons and a down, which I couldn't explain to you now. We finally made it to her front door, and I was impressed to see her children waiting in the foyer for our arrival. So it's just you, said her older son, clearly disappointed I didn't have my own kids in tow. Sorry, little man, it's just me, I told him. Good to see you, though. I told you the children weren't coming, Olivia scolded him gently. I really did tell him, she said to me. They showed me to my room, I thanked everyone repeatedly, and I spent the rest of the day fighting off jet lag. Wake up, Olivia declared playfully when I overslept the next morning. You're in London for Christ's sake, let's do something with our day. Olivia, my body thinks it's the middle of the night, I complained. Cut me some slack. You've been here 24 hours, she continued. How much time do you need? Two weeks? Ha ha, very funny, I said. And yes, I am excited to play, but I should also get some work done today before we venture out. All the more reason to get up earlier, she rebutted. Damn it, she was relentless, but she wasn't wrong. I rolled out of bed, clacked on some very important computer keys, then joined Olivia on whatever adventure she had organized. The first day, it was visiting a restaurant designed to help ex-convicts rebuild their job skills. I ordered a coffee and cream, and she looked at me sideways. Do you mean actual cream? she asked. 
Yes, if they've got any, I said. All right, you crazy American, she sighed, shaking her head at my decidedly foreign preference. Don't let me stop you from ruining a perfectly good cup of coffee. The first day merged into the next, then the next, and I let myself steep in the joy of being a stranger in a strange land. It was a different kind of strange than being in Mexico, or India, or Japan. Here, I was a native speaker of the national language, and my lack of pigmentation didn't immediately give me away as an outsider like it did in most other countries. England was like America, but in italics. One day, Olivia's father came to visit from out of town, and we all packed up to go to the stately home-slash-mansion museum of Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington. For those of you who need a refresher on 19th-century European history, the Duke of Wellington was the English bloke who, with the critical assistance of the Prussians, defeated that rascal Napoleon Bonaparte at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. As I wandered through the enormous home, I couldn't help but feel that Napoleon was to Wellesley what the Joker must have been to Batman. A necessary counterpoint, a worthy opponent, and a massively empty space once politically terminated. This may be a sophomoric take on some very serious history, but that doesn't change my mind about the comparison. Wellesley's house was nigh unto a shrine to Napoleon— In his personal museum room, full of golden eggs and other shiny trinkets, he also displayed Napoleon's bejeweled divorce gift, divorce gift, to one of his, Napoleon's, ex-wives. In another room dedicated exclusively to the paintings of important people, Wellesley included the portraits of any and all ex-mistresses of Napoleon that he, Wellesley, had also bedded. In the foyer, Wellesley had the floorboards industrially reinforced so the 13-ton statue of Napoleon, lifted from Napoleon's own residence, wouldn't fall through to the cellar. It was like Wellesley didn't know what to do with himself once his nemesis was gone. Like Napoleon's fall didn't alter the fact that each man's life was inextricably linked with the others. Some days, Olivia had work to do and would leave me to explore on my own. On one such day, I visited the Tate Britain, where I took a picture of the floor tile because it was too lovely to forget. Another such day, I visited the Tate Modern, where I found my way into a room which featured a huge work by Henri Matisse that I later learned was part of a collection called The Cutouts. This particular, quote, painting was enormous. If I'd laid the thing down flat, my guess is it would have been bigger than a king-size bed. I cried in front of that delightfully childish work, because that's what art does sometimes. Apparently, Matisse's eyesight had been so poor toward the end of his life, he continued to create content by tearing up huge, colored pieces of paper, standing back from an even huger canvas, and directing his assistants to arrange the paper as he saw fit. I stood as far away from the painting as I imagined Matisse had stood— and I felt the fragility of our earthly dimensions overwhelm me. Hence the tears. On my way home from the museum, I noticed a man out for a run who looked so graceful and weightless, he made the average jogger look like a jalopy with a flat tire. This man ran like he could stalk a herd all day, and he would definitely be the member of a hunter-gatherer village that I'd entrust to bring back our dinner— I tried to discern what made him so distinguishable from the rest of us injury-prone runners. 
As it happened, it was his feet. I realized he was hitting the ground with his toe first, which I've since learned is called forefoot running, and I decided right then and there that he must be doing it right and we were all doing it wrong. I've been a forefoot runner ever since. Can you believe I've never been to the Globe? Olivia asked one morning. Sure I can, I said. I lived just outside Yosemite for years, and there are people who literally grew up in that little town on the outskirts of the park who have never been to the park. We're talking like a 45-minute drive. Come to think of it, it was the same in India. None of my Indian friends had actually been to the Taj Mahal. That's all well and good, she said, but I refuse to leave England without seeing a play at the Globe. I'm going to get us tickets to whatever is playing, unless you object. I did not object, and what happened to be playing was Much Ado About Nothing. Well, wouldn't you know it? That was the show I was slated to be in back in La Grande. Serendipity. I got us tickets in the covered balcony section, Olivia reported later that day. The covered section, I asked her suspiciously. What about the authentic Shakespearean peanut gallery thing? I'm too old for that shit, Olivia said. On the night of the show, it was raining. Fine, you were right, I said as we squeezed our way through the dense blanket of tourists huddling under their plastic ponchos. We are too old for that shit, I confessed. Or maybe just too clever, she winked, looking down at the sopping masses. The play was great, of course, but I have to say that the Shakespearean theme of slut-shaming did not age well. When the weekend was upon us and the kids could be happily housed at home with the husband— Olivia and I hopped down to Paris. Don't forget your passport. <laughs> God, terrible accent. She reminded me. I know it's just a train, but we will, in reality, be leaving the country. We ate sushi on the train, as per her bizarre family tradition, gleefully celebrated our dual kidlessness, and recognized in each other, almost at the same moment, an eminently well-matched travel companion. We were not only willing to make similar plans that felt correct and alluring to both of us, we were also willing to let go of said plans if anything changed or felt wrong. For example, instead of going up to the Eiffel Tower as we originally thought we might, we followed the advice of a Parisian gentleman we'd met at a club, who suggested we visit the café within the skyscraper that overlooks the Eiffel Tower. From the cozy indoor café, we drank up the view of the city. Then we proceeded to wander on foot through the markets and malls to the base of the tower itself, before continuing down the Seine. We approached our adventure with the same amount of determination and flexibility as the other, and I found this balance to be rare and invigorating. But the real clincher, the way I knew Olivia and I were proper travel buddies, was our accordant and consistent agreement on the matter of food. We often felt hungry within the same time frame, but neither of us got unreasonably grumpy if we couldn't find a place to eat. We'd see a restaurant that looked like a good idea, only to read the menu, even in Paris, and agree that we could walk another few blocks before appeasing our hunger. Appetite compatibility is, dear reader, as you may know from your own travels, a big effing deal. If you can agree on what to eat, when to eat, and when to wait to eat, well, Shame on you if you don't cherish your foodie soulmate. Later that afternoon, on the steps of the Louvre, as the sun set and our feet throbbed, I looked down at our matching Chuck Taylors and popped the question. Olivia, I love you. 
Let's travel the world together as long as we both shall live. We laughed until we had to pee, then proceeded to take a picture of our feet. I didn't have a work wife, but I'd just proposed to my travel wife. Perisgasm! Congratulations to us! At one point back in London, Olivia mentioned how noticeable my weight loss was. And she was right. I'd dropped over 20 pounds since she'd last seen me in Mexico. It was all rather entertaining to me at the time. After decades of food obsession, body obsession, self-abuse, and anger, I'd finally let it all go. Once I discovered the truth of who I really was, I recognized that my value was uncorrelated with my weight. Our cultural fixation on weight loss is really the mind hijacking the body's conversation, while our struggles with obesity is capitalism's byproduct at scale. My body was powerful and miraculous, and I no longer wanted to find happiness by decreasing my dress size so much as I wanted to honor the needs of my personalized movement machine by eating well and exercising regularly. When I stopped filtering my body's voices through the convoluted filter of my mind and the social tropes which equate thinness with value, I proceeded to watch those 20 pounds fall off almost effortlessly— I mentioned to Olivia and her husband that I used to identify as the kind of person who ate too much, especially in regard to sugar. I used to think that's who I was, I explained, and who I was somehow condemned to be forever, probably because I had always been that. Then I just decided that I didn't have to be anything I didn't want to be, and I started telling myself a new story of who I was. As soon as I said, I don't eat sugar in excess anymore, it was true. It was true the moment I said it. Oh, laughed Olivia's husband. So you just lied to yourself? I thought about this. Was I lying to myself? Was the choice to be a whole new person, even if I'd never been that person before, self-deceit? No, I decided. Lying wasn't a term that felt right at all. I wasn't thinking in my deepest heart, well, the real me eats too much sugar, but let's see if I can trick my body into resisting. It wasn't a trick. It was a reevaluation of who I wanted to be and an acknowledgement that I had complete authority over that subject. Because if I didn't have that power, then who did? Telling myself I didn't eat sugar in excess was the first imperative step on the journey. Not eating sugar in excess was merely the matching subsequent behavior. Throughout my time in England, Little Jack and I stayed in regular contact. One of his texts said something like, I have faith that this won't scare you away, but I want you to know that I love you. I can feel it to the depths of my soul. Fuck yes! Three cheers for letting love take the shape it wants. We decided we wanted to see each other as soon as possible upon my return, so he offered to buy me round-trip tickets from Oregon to New Hampshire for the entire month of November. This felt like one part manifestation and one part divine intervention, though it could easily be argued they are one and the same. And, of course, maybe it was also one part human generosity. Needless to say, I gratefully accepted Little Jack's generosity, and it was nice knowing exactly how long it would be before I would see my sweetheart again. Spending November in New Hampshire also meant a lighter housing burden on Harriet Jean, and I was eager to share that news with her. Who knows, I wondered. Maybe I'll end up on the East Coast indefinitely. What about the kids? asked my rational brain. I don't know, I thought back. I'm just throwing pasta at the wall. 
Little Jack continued to assure me that he supported my sexual freedom and exploratory needs and that I needn't feel obligated to refrain from dating. This assurance was one of the reasons I was beginning to feel more and more like he was my boyfriend, because any man who didn't support my sexual freedom and exploratory needs would never qualify for the position. As it happened, I did go on one English date toward the end of my stay with a local fellow I'd met online. We had a round of designer drinks at a hip little pub, then went back to his flat to order Ethiopian food. After dinner, we smoked a joint, and he asked permission to kiss me. I loved this. Consent, consent, consent. Sure, I'll take a kiss, I said, but you should know that I'm not much interested in more than that tonight. What a magnificent new world was this! I was making boundaries with Mr. London not because I'd promised Little Jack I would forsake all others, but because I wanted to. That's perfectly all right, he said and laid a sweet, tender one on me. We kissed for a few moments, and a small part of me wanted to take off my clothes and stay the night. But a bigger part of me didn't. So I thanked him for dinner and for the company, untangled myself from his long, gentle arms, then walked back to Olivia's with a pep in my step. My date had provided a microdose of human intimacy, and I felt gratified and empowered. Eventually, the day came for me to bid adieu to Olivia and her family. I squeezed the kids, hugged the parents, and thanked everyone for sharing their sacred shelter. I mean it, I said. This may look like a vacation, and it's not not vacation, but you guys helped me not be homeless for a few weeks, and I am grateful. Oh, Evie, you're such a weirdo, Olivia said as she embraced me. Parting is such sweet sorrow. I didn't know how the future would unfold, but I had learned enough by now to know that I didn't have to. Just sit tight and wait to see what's in store for you and Jack, my deepest heart said. And so, as always, I listened. <laughs> 